Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now going to cover in this audio, Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Our context is this, in chapter 2, Paul, after showing that Christ was humble even, even to death on a cross, obedient even to death on a cross, and thus exhibiting his kenosis, his emptying of himself of his royal privileges and prerogatives and reputation, but not his divinity, Paul uses that Humility of Christ is an example to the Philippians that they need to be humble too. And then he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but not you work it out, but Christ who lives in you. That's our context. In this section, verses 1 through 11 of Philippians 3, we're going to see Paul talking about knowing Christ by putting no confidence in the flesh. So we start now in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says in verse 1, finally, he's still got two chapters to go, but he's wrapping it up here, even though he's going to take two chapters to do it. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and that's the bottom line. That's the end when all is said and done. Rejoice in the Lord, despite the fact that he was in jail getting ready to be poured out as a drink offering, he thought, which meant he was contemplating the fact that he might be facing a death sentence. Rejoice. Eight times, Paul, in the English Standard Version translation, eight times he uses the word rejoice in the book of Philippians, and five times he uses the word joy. And this is a book he's writing while he's in jail, and part of the time, at least, is probably facing death. I don't think we need to say anything about how to apply that in modern 21st century life. If Paul can rejoice in that situation, maybe we can rejoice while we sit here in quarantine during the coronavirus pandemic. Paul says to write the same things again is no trouble to me. Well, the things he's going to write is is beware against legalism, false Judaizers. He's going to talk about that in a minute. He says the same things, which, which states that he's said the same things to them before. Or at least the same things, again, in some other place. John Gill says it could be the same things he had written to other churches at other times, and those teachings might have filtered back to the Philippians. Could be. Or it could be be that Paul had delivered these anti-legalist teachings personally earlier to the Philippians, because remember, he's seen the Philippians before on the second journey, when he started the church. doesn't really matter when he did it, but he's repeating it. Why? Because it never hurts to repeat things when there's danger around, especially when you're dealing with heresy. So what does Paul say here? He says, verse 2, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision. Now, Paul doesn't treat these dogs like he treated those who preach from envy and strife. Remember in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul said this, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but but some also from goodwill. Well, those were obviously believers who had mixed motives and who weren't pure in their motives as they preached. Paul doesn't call them dogs, but these people he calls dogs. Now, we know that they were Judaizers. They were saying you had to be circumcised in order to get saved. Whether they were believing Judaizers or non-believing Judaizers, I'm not sure, but I think because he calls them dogs, which is a whole cut above what he said about those preaching from envy and strife, I think they were probably non-believing Judaizers. Jews who were saying, no, you can't get saved by Christ. You have got to be saved by keeping the works of the law, and we don't believe in Jesus. Now, you can have Judaizers who say, 
well, we believe in Jesus, but we also believe in the law too, which is kind of a, a moderate type of Judaizer. But I think these were the severe types of Judaizers. Who said that you must believe in Christ, plus you must work, do the works of the law in order to get saved? Now, we see these everywhere in the New Testament. For example, in Acts 15, verse 1, we read this. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These were Judaizers who came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and thus were the occasion of the famous Jerusalem Council in, in Acts chapter 15. This idea that you've got to believe in Christ, that you've got to do works of the law in addition to believing in Christ, this is a serious, serious error. It's much worse than trying to get a name for yourself like the preachers in chapter 1, the ones preaching from envy and strife. And so since it's such a serious error, Paul calls them dogs and evil workers. Now, those who think that Paul only spoke words of love all the time should know this. Dogs, evil workers. Remember, he had asked the Philippians in a previous place. I don't have the verse in front of me. It says that avoid disputations. Well, that's talking about arguing over trivial stuff. Paul was more than willing to get into disputations with dogs and evil workers, people who would wreck the faith of Christ. He knew how to major on the majors and minor on the minors. It's ironic that Paul calls these false Judaizers with the same word, dog, that Jews call Gentiles. Jews often call Gentiles dogs. And that was not puppy dogs. That's not dogs in a good sense. That's dogs in a bad sense because dogs generally had a negative connotation in Scripture. I don't even know if they had dogs that were domesticated as pets back then. I don't think they did. But at any rate, in Scriptures, we see dogs referred to in a highly unfavorable light. For example, in Revelation 22:15. Outside, that means outside the New Jerusalem, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So dogs are hooked up with some very unsavory characters there in Revelation 22. Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. That's people who don't believe in Jesus, dogs. Deuteronomy 23:18. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Well, now, the hire of a harlot, you understand. Let's say the prostitute asks for 100 bucks so you can carry her into the temple and have sex so you can unite yourself with your pagan god. Well, obviously, that's bad. But what does it mean, the wages of a dog? Dogs hire wages? Well, that makes no sense, of course. But as the NIV study Bible points out, a dog means a male prostitute. Actually, I think the NIV translation actually has it as a male prostitute. So you would find a homosexual, if you were a guy, you found a homosexual prostitute. Say, I'll pay you 100 bucks, and we'll go in and we'll get it on so we can show our identity and union with our pagan God. Well, that's disgusting. So you see, a dog here is, it refers to a male cult prostitute. So that's not your friendly little Fido with his head cocked and his tail wagging as he waits for you to pet him under his chin. Second Peter 2.22, it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. <laughs> That's not a very flattering picture of a dog, is it not? And actually, they do do that. They throw something up and decide they're going to waste some food, so they lick it back up again. Psalm 22.16, for dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And of course, that was fulfilled in Jesus' time, when all that jeering mob stood around him, fulfilled what Psalms called dogs, evil people. Psalms 22:20, 20, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. 
So to summarize, a dog was something that ate its own vomit, would trample holy things, would destroy life, was worth what a whore was worth. That's what, or what a male prostitute was worth, actually. That's what Paul thought about legalists. He wasn't happy with those folks. Little Jesus, meek and mild, that's what, Je- that's what Paul taught. Paul says that Christians were the true circumcision as opposed to the false circumcision of the flesh that these Judaizers were preaching. A true circumcision means that Christians were circumcised in the heart, not in the flesh. Now, this, con- this contrast between flesh and spirit and true circumcision and false circumcision is something you find all through Paul's writings. Well, he says that we, Paul and the Philippian Christians, put no confidence in the flesh. We need to unpack that word flesh because it has three uses in the scriptures. Well, I'll talk about those three uses in the scriptures in a later verse. Let me, let's just look right now at this verse and see what Paul is probably talking about. We put no confidence in the flesh. It's obviously not talking about that pink or brown or yellow stuff that wraps around your bones. He's not talking about that. What is he talking about? Well, he could be talking about the Jews' fleshly descent from Abraham as a Jew. These Jewish, Jewish Judaizers are saying, we are of Abraham, therefore we're saved. Paul's saying, because we are of the flesh, we are of the same genetics. As Abraham, Paul saying, no, you better not put no, any confidence in that. That's not going to get you saved. Or it could be put confidence in the flesh of their foreskin, which it got snipped when they were circumcised. Hey, we're circumcised. We got it made. We're saved. And Paul saying, no, that's not going to get you saved. That flesh, fleshly foreskin of yours, which was tossed aside, is not going to get you saved. Or Paul could have meant keeping the law in the strength of one's flesh. In other words, natural strength. We put no confidence in our natural strength. Could be all three for that matter. Now, as I said, Paul contrasts that no confidence in the flesh, but on the contrary, we worship in the spirit of God. There's that constant contrast between flesh and spirit. You could do get a do a computer search on flesh and spirit and look at and look and see how those two words contradict each other. I've done that one time. It's it's amazing. On one hand, in one column, you have law, works, flesh. Death. On the other hand, you have spirit, life, righteousness. When we put confidence in the spirit and worship in the spirit and glory in Christ, what we're doing is we are allowing the inward work of the Holy Spirit to cause us to do external good works. Not works of the flesh, but works which are originated in the Holy Spirit. We go to Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul continues, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. That's in the middle of the sentence, so let's go back and look at verse 3. Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, although I might myself have confidence even in the flesh. He's saying, what he's guarding against is somebody saying, well, yeah, you don't put any confidence in the flesh, Paul, because you don't, you're a loser. You haven't done anything worth putting confidence in. So it's real easy for you to say put no confidence in the flesh, but hey, I'm a big important man in my community, and if I don't put any importance in my social status, then I will bring reproach upon the church of Christ, and I'll make everybody think the Christians are a bunch of losers. Well, Paul's not going to have any any of that. He's going to say that I, did, I have put aside confidence in the flesh in a big-time way. He continues uh, here's where I want to talk about flesh. What does he mean by putting confidence even in the flesh? Flesh can have three meanings in general. First, physically, the material stuff that wraps around our bones. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here when he says he might have had confidence even in the flesh. He's not going to say he has confidence in the stuff wrapped around his bones. 
So metaphorically, he's, he's talking metaphorically here. I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Metaphorically, that flesh means the urge which pushes or seduces us to commit sin. Well, Paul's not talking about that here. He's not having confidence in that sinful impulse that we all have. No. Paul uses that term to describe flesh in Romans 7, for example. The third use of the word flesh is a metaphorical use Human effort unaided by God, and that's what Paul's talking about here. I myself have had confidence even in my human effort, that which I could do apart from God. Now let's look at what he could have put his confidence in, his human accomplishments. Verse 5, he was circumcised the eighth day. Well, that's not really a human accomplishment, but that's a status. That's a something that was given to him as far as his status is concerned, so he would be operating out of his a human attainment, actually, even though it was not his attainment. It was his parents who put him into the Jewish faith. He was circumcised the eighth day. Of course, the circumcision is the seal of the covenant of God with Abraham. As Gill puts it, quote, it's a sign and a seal that the righteousness of faith, which he had while he was an uncircumcised person, should come upon the uncircumcised Gentiles in the times of the Messiah. Well, that's what circumcision was supposed to be, a sign that points toward the righteousness of faith. But unfortunately, the Jews, the Pharisees, said that circumcision gave one a special spiritual status automatically, just with the external right. And it, it would give you confidence in the flesh to say, hey, I'm favored before God because my foreskin has been cut. And Paul is saying, no, I'm not confident. I could have boasted in my circumcision to say that I'm a child of Abraham, but no, I don't do that. I'm a child of faith. Circumcised the eighth day, that was the law, Genesis 17:14. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, that's an amazing thing. That sign of the covenant was so strong. If you didn't get circumcised by the eighth day, if your parents didn't do that, you were outside the body of Israel. Cut off can either mean excommunicated from Israel or it can be killed. I don't think you were going to kill a baby because he wasn't exercised wasn't circumcised, but he was no longer considered a Jew. So that was serious business, that covenant sign. Paul continues in verse 5 with all of his fleshly statuses, his fleshly status and his accomplishments. He says he was of the nation of Israel. Paul participated in all the benefits the Israelites had. Romans 9, 4, he's referring to Israelites, and he says, To whom belongs the adoption of sons? The Israelites were the son of God. The whole nation was adopted as a son. And the glory, that's the Shekinah glory that God manifested himself to the Israelites in the in the form of which God manifested himself to the Israelites and the glory in the covenants that's the Abrahamic covenant that's the first of all the 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 Noahic covenant and then you got the Mosaic covenant and then you got the Davidic covenant there's covenants everywhere in the Old Testament and the giving of the law that's Moses's law and the temple service and the promises the promises to Abraham of land offspring and blessings to the nations fulfilled in the church, all that stuff. But Paul had all those things physically as a member of Israel. And he says, I could have put confidence in that, but I'm not going to do it. He says, I, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Why should Paul put confidence in that? Because Benjamin was considered a preeminent tribe. The first king, Saul, was a Benjamite. A Benjaminite. The city of Jerusalem was half in Benjamin. I think I read somewhere the the boundary line between Judah on the south and Benjamin on the north ran right through the temple. So they, I knew they shared Jerusalem. I think they shared the temple also. So Benjamin had a high status. Benjamin was one of only two tribes that stayed faithful to Jehovah. 
when the northern ten tribes revolted and decided to worship the golden calves. But Paul doesn't rely on the fact that he's a Benjamite to say that he's saved and that he knows God now. He said he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, here's four options, four ways in which Paul distinguished himself from other Hebrews. Now, what he was talking about, we don't know. He could have been talking about all four, but let's let's look at them. First of all, he could trace his pedigree from Abraham. Maybe Paul said, I can, I've got the records. I can prove my genealogy all the way back to Father Abraham. Most Hebrews can't do that. That's John Gill's idea. Or it could be he was a Hebrew of Hebrews because he understood the Hebrew language, but the Hellenistic Jews could not. So he was a Hebrew above other Hebrews. He was a he, third option. John Gill says this. Paul was a prominent teacher among the Hebrews. So he was a Hebrew of Hebrews because not many Hebrews could teach like he did. Not many Hebrews were big shot rabbis like he was. Or it could be, as many people say, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. His parents were Hebrews. They were from Cilicia. We don't know much about his parents, but it's speculated that his parents were Jews. Well, I don't know what it is, but Paul was Jewish to his eyeballs. Did he rely on that for his salvation? Not at all. He was a Pharisee, he says in verse 5. Well, that was the strictest sect of the Jews with regard to interpreting the law, or actually interpreting their traditions, which they erroneously based on the law. Paul was a Pharisee. Did he rely on that for his salvation? No, he did not. Oh, but to top it all off, verse 6, Paul was a persecutor of the church. That should make the Jews happy. Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Not only was he a persecutor, he was a persecutor par excellence. Beyond measure he persecuted, and he was trying to destroy it, just like Xi Jinping is trying to destroy the church in China. Lots of luck on that, Xi Jinping. You're going down, buddy. You ain't going to get away with it. Acts 22.4, Paul says this, I persecuted this way, that's the church, I persecuted this way to the death, arresting and putting both men and women in jail. To the death, that means some of the people he persecuted and put on trial were executed for blasphemy. That's pretty Jewish. And, of course, he's not relying on that for his salvation, of course. He finishes off verse 6 by saying, As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Now, that's a righteousness. That's a legal righteousness, righteousness which is found in the law. He has to qualify that word righteous because there's a forensic righteousness, a true righteousness that we get by believing in Jesus, a faith righteousness, if if you will. But this is righteousness which is found in the law, and he was impeccable. He impeccably kept the law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, the moral law, if you can make those distinctions, which I don't, but a lot of people like to do that. It doesn't doesn't matter as far as Paul's concerned, because he kept it all. But he was still a rotten, dirty waster of the church, as the King James has it for persecutor of the church, a waster of the church, a persecutor of the church. This shows Paul's radical radical conversion. He was willing to die. That's why he was willing to die for Jesus, because Jesus had changed his life so much. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9, Paul continues. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul in verse 8 says, I count all things to be lost. Now, he's mentioned a bunch of things he's just counted as loss. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, he's referring back to those Jewish things. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. He was an Israelite. He was from Abraham. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews and all that. 
he says, hey, that don't mean a thing to me. I, that's all lost. But then when he says more than that, I count all things to be lost, he's probably talking about things even beyond the stuff that he's already mentioned. As John Gill says, quote, all that honor, credit, reputation, and popularity he was in for knowledge, and popularity he was in for knowledge and devotion. All worldly substance, the comforts of life and life itself, and all his righteousness since conversion, as well as before. <laughs> in other words, I mean, he was stripped of everything, folks. Everything. He knew what it meant to die to his flesh. Why would he do such a counterintuitive thing? Because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And as we're going to see in a minute, knowing means to know personally, not intellectually. Not knowing about Christ Jesus my Lord, but knowing Christ Jesus my Lord as his God, as his friend, as his Savior, personally. Now, he counted all these things to be rubbish. Now, rubbish is a nice word. It sounds British, which the British say, say rubbish for trash. In China, all the Chinese people there have been influenced by British English, and they would... They wouldn't call trash trash. They'd call it rubbish. Well, listen to what King James calls it, dung. Well, that's a little bit different than rubbish, is it not dung? John Gill translates it as dog's meat. But let me give you John Gill's further elaboration of this word, which the NIV translates as rubbish, and which Adam Clark says, the vilest dross or refuse of anything, the worst excrement. Well, that's pretty good. But listen to what John Gill calls all these worldly honors that Paul was talking about, quote, intends everything that is base, mean, and worthless as the feces of men, the dregs and lees of liquor, the falling of fruit, chaff, stubble, the dross of metals, dung, and whatnot, trash. Count all your worldly accomplishments as trash. Let's make an ap obvious application here. If you want to follow Christ, you want to know Christ, remember, he gave all this up for what? To know Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you want to know Christ, you got to give it all up. You got to give all that stuff up, all that you've, all the money that you've got, all the social prestige that you've got, all the family honor, all the civic honor, whatever it is, ecclesiastical honors, all that up, you got to give it up. Count it as dung, as poop, as excrement, because that's what it is. And if you do that, you will know Christ and gain Christ. Now, when we say gain Christ, we don't mean works righteousness that you somehow you work and you get paid for what you do you get paid with salvation no it means you're going to just obtain more knowledge of christ you'll get christ as a reward for your belief your belief is not works it's just that you believe what christ has already done for you his work for you and then you believe in that and you gain you obtain christ if you will so we don't we need to avoid connotations of works righteousness there Verse 9, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. Again, that word righteousness is qualified. You got righteousness of my own derived from the law. That's legal righteousness, works righteousness, which is not righteousness. It's fake righteousness. But on the other hand, we have the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So we'll just call that faith righteousness for short. Now, verse 9, Paul says we have righteousness which is through faith in Christ. Remember, these pronouns can be hard to translate. It could be translated, which we have in the faith of Christ, which our righteousness, we may be found in Christ, having righteousness which comes in God through faith of Christ, through the faith of Christ. In other words, Christ believes in the Father, and he gives righteousness to us. I don't believe that's what it is, but that is an option. Or it could be through the faith of Christ we have this righteousness, in other words, through the Christian faith, an objective translation of 
the word faith. No, but I don't believe so here. I believe it's subjective. We have our belief in Christ, and when we do that, we have the righteousness which comes from God. Faith not works, fundamental teaching of the Reformation. I hope we still believe it. This righteousness which comes from God, Paul also mentions in Romans 3.21, but now apart from law, the righteousness of God has been been manifested. The righteousness which is produced by God, God's righteousness. When we say the righteousness of God, we can say the righteousness which was produced by God. Here's the way Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown put it, quote, The righteousness of faith, in Paul's sense, is the righteousness or perfect holiness of Christ appropriated by faith as the objective ground of confidence for the believer and also as a new subjective principle of life. Hence, it includes the essence of a new disposition and may easily pass into the idea of sanctification, though the two ideas are originally distinct. Well, that's a good point. The righteousness which Paul is talking about here, is he talking about judicial righteousness, justification when he gets born again or is re- and when he got regenerated? Or is he talking about the righteousness that comes from sanctification as he practically lives out his Christian faith? He doesn't say. I suspect he's talking about justification here. But as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say, he could be talking about sanctification too. Either way, whether it's justification or sanctification, it comes by faith in Christ. It does not come through your works. And I can hear reformers saying, but wait a minute, we don't want to be passive. Okay, we're not going to be passive, okay? But your sanctification, what did Paul say to the Galatians? You foolish Galatians, you began with faith, and now you're going to finish up with works? Well, what does he mean by finish up with works? Sanctified? You're going to be sanctified by works? No, you're not sanctified by works. You're not justified, and you're not sanctified by works. That doesn't mean you don't produce works as a fruit of your salvation, but they're not the root of your salvation. We go to verses 10 and 11 in Philippians 3. He's in the middle of a sentence, so let me go back and pick up at the end of verse 9. Let me just read verse 9. We may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And now verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So if you get... If you get that righteousness which comes from faith, what's the result? That I may know him. You get to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Well, let's start with the first the first thing that happens once we obtain that faith righteousness. What's the first thing that happens? We get to know him, know Jesus. Now, actually, Paul already knew Christ, as John Gill points out. He had believed for years, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 12:2, which was written about 55 A.D., Philippians is written about 60:62. So, roughly five or six years earlier, Paul has said this: "I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was called up to the third heaven." Well, obviously, Paul knew Jesus if he's going to be called up to the third heaven. So, what does Paul mean when he says that I may know Him? Well, he could have been referring to the past. He counted all that stuff as rubbish, all his worldly attainments as rubbish in the past that he might know him and get justified. But it could be he's talking about that I might know him deeper, deeper, deeper than he had already known him. His knowledge of Christ was already great, but it was still in part, and he wanted to know more. Now let's talk about this word know. This comes up all the time. Most languages have two different words for intellectual knowledge and personal knowledge. For example, French has savoir for intellectual knowledge and connaître for personal knowledge. Chinese has jordao for intellectual knowledge and rencher for personal knowledge. 
Unfortunately, English doesn't do that. We just say, no, I know how to do algebra. I know my neighbor. Two different meanings of know, but we use the same word. So we've got to distinguish it out. Now, the Greek here for know, knowing Christ, knowing him, the Greek word that's, that's used here in Philippians 3.10 is a form of gnosko. It's, it's gnonai, which is an infinitive of gnosko, I know. And the, the strong definition there is to become acquainted with, to know. means, In other words, it's personal knowledge. Gnosko is personal knowledge. It is not intellectual knowledge. It's not knowledge about something. In other words, Paul is not saying that he attains this faith righteousness in order that I may know about Jesus. He's saying I've obtained this faith righteousness that I may know Jesus personally. It's a relationship. It's not a religion. Here's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. Quote, to know him is more than merely to know a doctrine about him. Believers are brought not only to redemption, but to the Redeemer himself. That word gnosko it was a Jewish idiom for sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. And intercourse is the closest personal knowledge humans can have. Paul used that same word to describe knowledge of Christ. In Genesis 4.1, we read this, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. So that means he was having sex with Eve. The Septuagint Greek translation of that Hebrew word there is egno, which is a form of the verb gnosko, which, as I said earlier, means not to, it means to know in the sense of becoming acquainted with, not intellectual knowledge. So when we talk about when we know Jesus, that means we know him personally when we obtain this righteousness that comes from faith. All right, what else do we have from this faith righteousness? We, Verse 10, Philippians 3, we know the power of his resurrection. We become acquainted with the power of his resurrection. We don't just know about Jesus' resurrection power. We know personally the power of his resurrection. That means in our life, we know the powerful effects of the resurrection on the lives of saints. The same power that the Father used to raise the Son. The power which the Holy Spirit uses to destroy sin in our lives and to ultimately raise us from the dead, even as Christ was physically raised from his tomb. So we get to experience that. We get to know it. Not know about it, but we get to experience the power of his resurrection as he delivers us from our bondages and delivers us from our persecutions and our tribulations and our coronaviruses. What else do we get to know by obtaining this faith righteousness, the fellowship of his sufferings? Ooh, that doesn't sound good. It's really amazing that Paul puts these wonderful things, knowing Jesus personally, knowing the power of his resurrection personally, and we get to know personally the fellowship of his sufferings. Fellowship is the word koinonia. I think it's koinonia here, but it means partakers of. We get to know what it means to partake of his sufferings or to share, to share in his sufferings. Now, John Gill says, how do we share in Jesus' sufferings? Well, we can share in Jesus' personal sufferings. He was rejected by men. He was physically abused by men. He was ignored by men. He was spit on by men, that kind of thing. So Christians suffer that kind of suffering also. But it could be that we will know the, we will partake, know what it means to partake of his sufferings means the sufferings of the body of Christ. Because Jesus is the head, and when the body suffers, he suffers. So we can share in those sufferings too. And that's going on today. Look at China. What Xi Jinping, Mao Zedong, Winnie the Pooh, Ping is doing to the church over there. I read somewhere that the church is now meeting about five or six people in a home at a time. They were ready for the coronavirus pandemic because they had already been forced to get into their homes because Xi Jinping has been tracking everybody down, putting cameras in the churches, 
kicking all the foreigners out who might mention Jesus, that kind of thing, throwing Christian leaders in jail. So it could mean that we know the fellowship of the sufferings of our fellow Christians. So Paul doesn't paint an overly rosy picture of what it means to be a Christian. He's just saying, hey, it's worth it to gain Christ, all that stuff. I give up a bunch of worldly honors, and then I I suffer persecution from the world, but hey, it's worth it because I know him. I get to know him and the power of his resurrection because whatever they do to us, they can't kill us because we will rise again. And in fact, Paul says in verse 11, he does all this. this, He obtains this faith righteousness in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Actually, more precisely, he was. Paul says in verse 10 that he was conformed to his death. Conformed to his death that he might obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, what does it mean to be conformed to Jesus' death? Well, Paul's already talked about giving up all his worldly attainments. He's already talked about fellowshipping with the sufferings of Christ, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, being made in the likeness, conformed to, made in the likeness of Jesus' death, dying like Jesus did. Yeah, well, he died. But he's going to attain to the resurrection of the dead. So no matter what stuff that Paul went through that any Christian goes through, he's going to be resurrected from the dead, and that's going to be the ultimate victory. Now, being conformed to Jesus' death, there are a couple of options as to what Paul meant by that. Is he talking about being physically conformed? Let's look at some scriptures that indicate this. Second Corinthians four ten through 12, Paul says this, Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Now Paul's talking about physical death, or the things that were leading to physical death, and the result of that was life in Jesus. Life of Jesus manifested in his body. But he was talking about death from the world, that Jesus might give him life. Colossians 1.24 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now he's talking about maybe the poverty of Jesus, the rejection that Jesus suffered from his fellow Jews, even as Paul did. But whatever Paul is suffering, he's saying, I'm doing the same thing that Jesus did. I'm feeling Jesus suffered, but he didn't finish suffering enough because I'm going to finish it up for him. I'm going to fill it up. I'm going to suffer also. He was continually exposed to death for Jesus' cause. All right, so that's physical, being conformed to Jesus' death physically. But it also could be mean being conformed to Jesus' death spiritually, to die to worldly things. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Paul says, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Well, obviously, that's not talking about physical death. You can't physically die every day, but you can die to the world. Galatians 5.24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Uh, there, your flesh is talking about your, your sin impulse that's in you. It's crucified. That's not talking about physical conforming to death, but spiritually conforming to the death of Jesus. Romans 8.13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's that mortification of the flesh is being conformed to Jesus' death. Jesus died physically, we die spiritually to all the sins that we want to, that, that the flesh wants us to commit. Romans 6, 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's talking about spiritually. We spiritually our flesh spiritually dies. Our old nasty fl- sinful impulses die. Matthew 10, 38. And he 
And he who does not take his cross and fall after me is not worthy of me. Of course, taking up a cross meant to carry the cross for your crucifixion. That could be referring to physical, physically being conformed to Jesus' death, but it's also spiritually too. You die. The two are actually fairly close together. 2 Timothy 2.11, it is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. And of course, I believe that's referring to spiritually, not physically, although it could mean physically. So, just as Jesus died to all worldly glory, so had Paul. He said in Philippians 3, 8b, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. So Paul was conformed to the death of Jesus. He participated in the rejection and the sorrows of Jesus. He was rejected by the world even as Jesus was, and he was a free man. Verse 11, he says... He was conformed to Jesus' death. Why? Verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What does he mean by that? Well, he's obviously talking about the physical resurrection of the body. It can't be spiritual resurrection from the dead, regeneration, because Paul had already attained to that, but he's looking to the future. And what he's saying is that resurrection of the dead, that kind of resurrected life is worth suffering death in the world to get to it. He said that I may attain... Does that mean that Paul doubted he would be physically resurrected? No, that does not mean that. Paul never expresses any doubt that he would not reach the physical resurrection. But what he's saying is that there are many difficulties to overcome in this life before that physical resurrection is obtained, and so that's what he wants to do. He wants to be conformed to Jesus' death so that he can overcome all obstacles till he gets to the ultimate goal, which is to be resurrected from the dead and to be glorified and in union with Christ forever. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. In our next audio, we'll take up Philippians 3, verses 12 through 21, in which Paul talks about attaining to the resurrection of the dead, about how he's got to strain toward the goal. He says, I'm not perfect already, but I'm going to keep pressing on until I obtain that goal, which is the resurrection of the dead, when he gets to be a citizen in heaven, and from it, he says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So he talks about getting to the point of being resurrected from the dead in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 